Right, okay, so the talk I've been given, or the session I've been given, is... Oh, it wasn't on the screen! Uh, we still got issues, Mark. We have, but we are many then. Yeah. Uh, don't worry about the res, if it's not quite right, if it's squashed, it'll be fine. Uh, right, okay, so we're thinking then about how to uh, prepare and to preach. What I, what I plan to do is spend a little bit of time looking at um, some points on preparation, and then spend a little bit of time looking at some points on our presentation, and then what I plan to do is actually give you a very short and condensed version of an evangelistic talk that I have prepared and do. Um, I'm not saying it's the best you've ever heard, but it will illustrate some of the points that I'm trying to put across now. This is going to be a very practical session, and it's going to be a bit of a mishmash. So there'll be lots of different ideas coming out here. I have got an outline, as you're going to see in a minute, hopefully. Uh, it's not the... It's a bit of a corny outline. It's one of those things where you think, I need an outline to give me structure, okay, personally, and that's not actually a bad thing in preaching. It just gives you a bit of discipline, and I need that, otherwise I'm here, there, and everywhere. Um, but because this is a bit of a mishmash, it's a bit of a corny outline, but I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll go with it anyway. Um, but first of all, by way of introduction, can I suggest to you that we must always be preparing? Always be preparing. Yet, there'll be those moments when we're in the office or the study, those concentrated times of preparation. We've got our Bible passage in front of us, we've got our theme in front of us for Sunday or for Wednesday or whenever it is, and we specifically are preparing that message at that time in a very concentrated way. But I want to suggest, to be really good communicators, really good preachers, our whole lives are a preparation. So, one guy asked an older Christian, after we'd heard him preach, how long did it take to prepare that sermon? And his answer was 30 years. And there's a sense in which that is true. But every time you preach a sermon, you'll be building on the foundations that you've been laying for the last excellent number of years. And you draw on that knowledge. So, in other words, always be an attitude which says, I'm on the lookout. I'm listening. I want to learn. And that means whenever we read the scriptures, even in our personal quiet. I, I hear people say this. Don't prepare sermons from your quiet times. And I think I know what people are saying when they say that. You know, Don't read the Bible for somebody else. Read it for yourself. However, my best sermons, without a shadow of a doubt, are the sermons that come out of my own study of Scripture when I've personally been challenged and moved. Because I preach from the heart then. In fact, to be honest, I find it hard to preach any other way really effectively. If it hasn't gripped me, if it hasn't challenged me, if it hasn't spoken to me first, I find it very hard to deliver that message in a way that is passionate and engaging. Um, so actually, I think that your, even your own personal quiet times, your own personal Bible study, should be feeding your preparation, should be giving you ideas for preaching uh, in every context now, teaching or evangelistic. So always be on the lookout. Keep notes, make, make, make notes. Wow, that would be a great parable to preach on. The ideas will start to come. And, and I would say, chew it over, mull it over. Uh, again, some of my best talks uh, have been prepared over weeks and weeks. And you're mulling it over all the time in the back of your mind. It can drive you crazy, I know. And you do need to switch off. But you know what I'm saying, don't you? Um, so always preparing. When you read the scriptures, when you listen to other people's sermons, Always be thinking. Now, is there an illustration of these messages that I could use? Is that, a, is that a phrase that I could nick? I love Warren Wisby's quote, I don't know if it's original to him, I milk many cows and make my own butter. 
That's a brilliant quote. And that's what all preachers do. I tell you, that's what all preachers do. They are moody.
I am a perfectionist, I hate it when it's wonky. Right, here we are, presentation points. Be memorable, not just mundane. Be memorable and not just mundane. I should have preparation points first. So what have you done to my talk? There we are, preparation points. Yeah, there's four points, right, we're going to work through those. First of all, be Bible-based, not just biblical. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, it, it, you can be biblical in your presentation, but not be Bible-based. In other words, what you're preaching is what the Bible teaches. It is sound theologically. Nothing wrong with it. And there is a place for doing that. You know, in the open air. You, know, you can't expound the passage. You can't open up the scriptures easily. Although there are even ways, around, ways of doing that in the open air. Vinny will tell you about that. Um, you know, at, at, at a men's breakfast, it's not always appropriate to open an angle. So it's going to be more topical. But my rule of thumb is, if I possibly can get away with it, I want to get a Bible verse or a Bible passage and speak from that. Now that is not that I stand and say, uh, the passage for today is Acts chapter 2. You'd like to turn in your Bibles to page 100. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, so it's, But I'm going to have the scriptures... I may not have a Bible in my hand. Actually, this is one of the great benefits and lessons I think at PowerPoint, for me, in my evangelistic preaching, is that I can do a Bible talk, a Bible-based talk, without me holding a Bible or anybody else holding a Bible. Because it just goes up on the screen. I'm looking at it, they're looking at it. And actually, that's very non-threatening. You know, it is a bit threatening if you start sticking a Bible into non-Christian's hands sometimes. And in some contexts, you can't do that. But you can always stick it up on the screen. And I'll show you that's what I do later on in the talk. I'm going to illustrate this from. Uh, the temptation and tendency, I think, is to be thematic and topical because we feel A is more relevant and B is more accessible. But don't give way to that temptation. Don't give way to that temptation. Why? Because the power is in the Word of God. We need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? The, the power is here, in this book. And uh, as we open the scriptures and as people begin to see where it's coming from, God speaks, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And there is something as well that and it says to people, look, this isn't this guy's idea. He hasn't dreamt this up. You know, he's not some clever communicator. You know, he's not some weirdo cultist who's come up with these funny ideas. We're showing them from the scripture. That's where authority is. We haven't invented this. This is what Jesus said. Look at what Jesus said. This is what the Bible says. They're the words. Look, let's read them together. So, I think that's important. Um, remember, uh, famous verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But do you know 2 Timothy 3.15? Just before that, the verse before that, Paul talking to Timothy about his own experience says this, you know how from infancy... You knew the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation. Right? That's the evangelistic use of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 is more the teaching use of Scripture. But there's an evangelistic use of Scripture. Let's trust the Bible. And let's use it evangelistically. So let's try and make our talks Bible-based uh, and not just biblical. Okay. And then secondly, uh, what have I said? Be clear and not just clear. Like I said, it's a bit of a corny outline, but I need outline, so there we are. Do you know, we're not just there, are we, to create an impression. 
We are there to communicate information. Sometimes evangelistic talks are massive on the impression. You know, emotionally, that, wow. You know, it, it's sit on the edge of your seat stuff, but at the end of half an hour, you ask yourself, now what has this guy actually said? You know, he's made you laugh, he's made me cry, uh, he's been gripping stuff, but what action? You boil the content down, it, sometimes it's less than nothing. You know? Um, and I've heard talks like that, I'm sure you've heard talk, evangelistic talks particularly can be like that. So we need to make sure that people are clearing their understanding. <clears throat> it's interesting to me that uh, in the parable of the sower in Matthew, um, chapter 13, isn't it? Yeah, you want to just look to that, Matthew 13. where Jesus gives the explanation of the parable. Jesus says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown on the path. When he receives the seed that fell on rocky ground, uh, rocky places, the man who hears the word of God at once receives it with joy. But since it has no root, and that's a short time, trouble comes, persecution comes, because of the word, quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the sickness of riches, of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop. Isn't it interesting? Mm-hmm. The seed that is snatched away is the person who hears the word and does not understand it. The seed that produces a harvest is the man who hears the word and understands it. Understanding is key, isn't it? Now, there's a huge element in which the Holy Spirit gives understanding. We know that, don't we? God opens eyes. God opens people's minds. And, and that truth will never be understood just because of our clear explanation. Okay. We've got to know that. But, you know, the Holy Spirit uses our words, uses our explanations, doesn't he? To give that understanding. So it's really important that we, as clear as we possibly can be, and that goes back to what we've been talking about earlier, what the gospel is. And I thought what Nick said was very helpful, tied in with what I was thinking of. There is a there is a, a minimum, isn't there, that people need to know in order to give an informed response, make an informed choice. That's what we want them to do. Yeah. Um, a decision on the basis of information, not emotion only. So, you hear some talks, they're very intellectually stimulating. Or you hear other talks, and they're incredibly entertaining. But you really couldn't make an informed decision about the gospel on the basis of those talks. And I think if that's the case, we fail in our gospel preaching, in our proclamation of the gospel. Sadly, often a response is sought at the end of those kind of talks. And sometimes a response is made. But you know in your heart of hearts, don't you? These people haven't got a clue, really, what they're doing or what they're responding to often. And it goes back a little bit to what we were saying earlier about what you're talking about, spurious conversions. I mean, I've been in meetings, particularly youth meetings, that sometimes the worst of it. Big meetings, there's been an appeal at the end of a very entertaining sort of talk which has got no content. 
And dozens and dozens of young people are coming forward or putting their hands up. I mean, there's usually quite a long appeal. But, you know, there's a big response. But then you think, what are they responding to here? You know? So, information is really important. To be understood, this is the second aspect of this point, to be understood by our audience, we need to understand our audience. I think that's really key. So effective communication requires some understanding of the background and knowledge and thinking process of our audience. And if we don't do that process of working that out, then there's a great danger of miscommunication. So are they church or unchurched? Are they academic, non-academic? What's their ethnic background? What's their religious background? You know, do they live in Wales? If they do, then uh, they're wonderful people and you need to be very careful about how, you know, there's a cultural background there, a cultural baggage. Sometimes describe it a bit like this. You know, you ever try to have a conversation at an airport um, where there's jets taking off every so often and your, your voice is a loss with the background noise or by a motorway or something. Yeah? And, and it's lost. Or on a mobile phone when there's a poor reception. You know, interference comes in. <coughs> background noise can interfere, can't it? And that background noise can be their culture. can be their background. can be their understanding. Their past experience of Christians. You know, or the cults. Or whatever. We need to do some work on understanding that. If we're going to effectively communicate. And that is going to impact on the language we use. The illustrations we use. The humour we use, just talking uh, over coffee, which um, is why I'm late, like someone else, <laughs> uh, but talking to Sheila about this, you know, in Wales, and coming from England to Wales from Reading to here, and the difference there is just in humour, you know, humour that is understood and, and appreciated elsewhere, just isn't got, you know, just don't get the humour at all. You can believe that, it's very embarrassing actually, even at all. You tell your great joke that's had them rocking in the aisles and there's stony silence. And it, ah, it's embarrassing for them. It's embarrassing for you, it's embarrassing for them. But it kind of, you don't get off to a great start, do you? You need to think about that. I'm preaching to a translator in Poland. And this is illustrates the point, but I was preaching on the tenses of salvation. You know, I have been saved, I have been saved, I will be saved. This translator looked at me like he said, we don't have three tenses in Polish like that. Oh. <laughs> right, well, let's turn in our Bibles to, uh, uh, and act as sort of rejigged it as a nightmare. Yeah, right. Now, we can see that in a, you know, where there's a different language, it's obvious. It's less obvious when it's one of these cultural issues. But it can have the same impact upon your ability to communicate. Because, of course, the same kind of communication is right now. My rule of thumb is this I assume ignorance rather than knowledge. You're safer to assume ignorance rather than knowledge. If you tell people something they already know, they might just say, oh, well, I already know that. But at least they know it, you know? But if you assume they know it and they don't know it, and you build your talk on the basis of that assumed knowledge, the whole talk collapses, doesn't it? So I'd rather have some people say, well, I've heard that before, but oh, this is good, rather than someone saying, what is he on about? So we do need to assume... People may be very literate and totally biblically illiterate. Okay? They can be very intellectual. You know, and understand physics and the laws. Einstein's, you know, what is it? Theory of relativity. Yeah, I don't understand it. But brilliant, 
praying boxes, and you come to the Bible, it's like talking to a Sunday school. You know, a, a primary school child, they've got no understanding whatsoever. You need to be aware of that. There's tremendous biblical literacy, isn't there? You cannot just refer to biblical stories. Uh, you know, uh, well, of course, David, uh, when he faced Goliath, he what does that mean? If someone doesn't know who Goliath is, doesn't know who David is, they're completely insane. You're talking gibberish, aren't you? Um, be aware of that. Um, so we need to understand where people are coming from. And Roger's already trumped me on this one, stolen my thunder, but never mind. Um, uh, Paul does this brilliantly, doesn't he? And we see in lots of ways in Acts, and just a point out, you probably heard this before, but I'm assuming even as far as knowledge, which is very pro. No, no. Uh, <laughs> but you see the contrast between the way Paul preaches in Antioch in Acts 13 and the way Paul preaches in Athens in Acts 17. So in Antioch, he's in the synagogue speaking to Jews, in Athens, he's in the Areopagus preaching to pagans. Paul, on both occasions, begins where they are, with their knowledge, with their background, with their thinking process. So in Antioch, he begins with the history of the Jewish nation. and speaking to Jews. They're keyed into that. But in Athens, he begins with the history of their paganism. Quite a but he talked about the history of their pagan temples. You know, you've got this temple that's to an unknown God. Yeah, and they know about that. That's part of their culture, part of their history. He begins where they are. In Antioch, he quotes from several Old Testament passages in Athens... He quotes from the Greek poets in Antioch. He talks about God without explanation of the character of God because he assumes that his listeners have that background and understanding uh, to a certain extent. Okay? He talks about God's dealings with the nation of Israel, but he doesn't you know, go into great depth about who God is. But in Athens, a large chunk of his talk was just very basic teaching about the nature and character of God because they've got a completely faulty pagan view of God, you know? He's not a God who needs temples built with hands. Why? Because he's created the world. You know, we don't need to feed him. He feeds us. Because they've got a completely wonky view of God from their pagan background. Paul, can I ask you a question? You can. Uh, churches are becoming more multicultural. Mm. So you've got a whole host of different types of listeners. How would you it's really hard. I, I, last weekend, no, two weekends ago, I was in East London, at East London Tabernacle. It's a great church, doing a really good work. You know, tough area, actually, in the city of London. Uh, there'd be a couple of hundred there on Sunday morning, 30 different nationalities. It's mind-boggling. Um, but what they've done, actually, is they have a Russian congregation that meets at the same time as the normal church meets. And I think maybe sometimes we've got to do that. I think sometimes the jump is so great that actually we've got to have specific groups that specifically target those people. Um, having said that, I think if you're aware that you've got a multi-ethnic, multi-racial congregation and you increasingly have it right, then you need to be aware of that, conscious of that. Yeah? And you're not... I accept that in every sermon I'm not going to hit everybody with everything. And actually, even if you're in the same culture, speaking the same language, not everybody gets everything to them. You know, they get one or two things, usually. Three or four if we're lucky. So I'm happy with that in a multi... I, I accept that, yeah, for some people, I'm going to be speaking too fast. And I will be using some words they won't understand. 
Do you know what I mean? You can't, if it's multiracial and mixed, don't dumb it down. Oh, not dumb it down, that's the wrong word. But do you know what I mean? Don't, don't simplify it so much or speak so slowly because you're concerned about that one that everybody else is bored. And, I mean, that's common sense. Well, doesn't it help if you yourself are not too ethnocentric as well? Yeah, it does. It's hard to do that, isn't it? Because we are very much a product of our culture. It does, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't get... Don't overstress this one. I think we can get so stressed about this that we sort of think, oh, I can never preach again, you know. Um, But yeah, these are all helpful things to bear in mind. Yeah? All right, let's carry on. The point I was going to make was... Although Paul begins in different places in Antioch and Athens, he ends up the same place in both Antioch and Athens. Where does he end up? He ends up with Christ. He ends up with the cross. He ends up with the resurrection. In both places. So we may start at different places, but we're going to end up at the same place. Yeah? We, we, you know, people may be over here and need to be here. And we've got to take them on that journey. But we have got to take them on that journey. We've got to get there. Right, sorry. Well, it's uh, time going, isn't it? We need to make it simple but not simplistic. Don't be condescending. There's a good danger of that, you know, with what we've just said. Well, uh, you may know that the Bible is split up into two halves, and there are 66 books in the Bible. And uh, now on page... Sometimes it can come across as a bit condescending. You know, these people may be very intelligent people. Don't insult their intelligence. So you've got to be very skillful in the way that you make something simple without it being condescending, haven't you? So don't be condescending. Don't insult their intelligence. But be clear. Talk about having outlines. Outlines help you to be clear sometimes. The good outlines are like that one. Uh, a clear summary is really helpful. Be a jargon buster. Only don't use that term, but it's a jargon. <laughs> uh, but, you know, don't use jargon. Work really, I try to work really hard at thinking of phrases and ways of saying Christian jargon in a way that's going to be So Roger had a really helpful comment, actually, this morning, when you picked up on it, that the message is a good book. Not, you know, to do your studying, but in terms of finding... You know, dynamic equivalence, as the technical term is, actually is quite good at that. Yeah? And we need to think of dynamic equivalence. <laughs> we need to think of, of ways of saying the same thing in a language that is understand, understood without losing the meaning. That's a challenge, isn't it? Um, right, second point, no, third point. Uh, be polished, not just passable. I have heard too many evangelistic talks where you know the guy spent virtually no time in preparation. Because he feels he knows the gospel so well, he can just stand up and waffle. And I think that's really sad. I actually think you put more effort into your evangelistic sermons sometimes than you do your teaching sermons. Um, we need to study. And there is a, this is a criticism of myself as I am, was an evangelist. But it, often evangelists are not great students of the word. They're not very theological. They're not, sadly. And we need to be theologians more than Bible teachers. Because we've got a major problem. We've not only got to understand the scriptures so that we can teach the gospel accurately, we've got to understand the mind of the unconverted as well. And then we've got to work out how we translate this into that. It's a massive job, isn't it? And, uh, and, And along with that, We've got to make sure that 
In that process, we don't lose the accuracy and truth of the message that we're trying to teach. So, spend time. What I'm trying to say is, work at your evangelistic sermons in the same way you work at your teaching sermons. They need the same, if not more, time to prepare well. Do that work. Um, don't let your evangelistic preaching be the poor relation, the Cinderella of preaching. It mustn't be that. It's got to be of a high quality. Um, and if you're going to use visuals, I'm really embarrassing this. If you're going to use visuals, make them good visuals. You know, if you're going to use a PowerPoint, don't be fiddling around with it for ten minutes before the meeting starts and calling people out and then fiddling around and don't do much. No, no. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, be organised, be polished. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying be an American evangelist with a, you know, a, a Armani suit on and a quiff. Very hard for me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying be a slick, slimy kind of, you know, salesman. But do be, be, be polished. Present it really, really well. And then I'll say finally there, under preparation points, that's only halfway through, be prayerful, not just professional. Yeah? Be prayerful. Be prayerful in your preparation. You know, if anyone's going to get affected by this message, People are going to get converted because God's Spirit is at work. And we've got to saturate our evangelistic preaching in prayer, haven't we? We know it's hard. Roger said it. People are hard to the gospel these days. They are. All the more reason to spend more time on our knees. You know? Forever we stand on our feet. God to saturate it in prayer. And I'd be honest with you, uh, I don't do that. Here's a little little uh, quote from uh, from Wesley. Sorry, it's a bit out of place with this, but I like this little quote. Bearing in mind that Wesley was a brain box. He was a brain on legs. You know, not just a theologian, but he, he was other things as well. He was into philosophy and science. A lot of things we don't know about Wesley. He was a really clever chap. Obviously, uh, was he Cambridge or Oxford? Oxford? Oxford, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a really clever book. This is what Wesley said about his own preaching. I design plain truth for plain people. Therefore, of set purpose, I abstain from all nice and philosophical speculation and all intricate reasoning, and as far as possible, even from the show of learning. And I think a lot of preachers would do a lot of good to take note of, of his words there. You know? He, he was a brain box, but he was irrelevant. He want people to look at him and think, what a great message that was. He says, I want people to understand it and it to be clear. Alright, so, what about presentation points? Uh, so, any questions or comments on that? We've got to that question. Any questions or comments oh, on preparation? Yeah, please, John. Question. Um, when we were speaking in Hyde Park Corner about two weeks ago, mm. what was interesting, comments were made from the listeners and they said, um, some people are speaking with passion and some people are not speaking with passion. When Can I come on to that? Yeah. That's my presentation point. Second half of the talk. I'll come on to that. Thanks. Yeah. You've not mentioned anything about, uh, well, you said be Bible based but not biblical. You've not mentioned anything about selecting the passage of Scripture. Thank you. That is so helpful because I meant to do that. It's going to come on and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to come on to that because I meant to do it already. That's really, really helpful. I would just pick up on a comment that Roger made, which I think he got from Roy Jocelyn, wasn't it, from the Urban Harvest. And I, I would agree that's what I've come to as well. 
and that is, I select my, my, my passages very carefully for evangelistic preaching, and 99% of them now come from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And I do that because I find, A, uh, you're right into the subject of Jesus, aren't you? Who he is. And the Gospel is Jesus. Who he is, what he's come to do. It's engaging because it's a story, and people relate more easily to a story. Um, and you don't always, you do sometimes, but you don't always have to do a massive amount of background explanation. When you come to the epistles, they're so packed, aren't they? They're so full with, uh, with, with theology sometimes that you've got to do so much unpacking that you, know, you spend more time doing that than, do you know what I'm saying? So I, 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 I go for the Gospels. Um, more often than not. Not always, but more often than not. Um, yeah, so select it carefully. And the other thing, when you, when you select a passage, even a passage from the Gospels, select a passage that's going to lead you into preaching the cross. Okay? Now, I think <coughs> my, my, what is a Gospel talk, if you remember, I don't believe that even if the cross is not mentioned in the passage, uh, that you can't mention the cross. You must mention the cross because of the context of the whole gospel. When John wrote his gospel, as I said earlier on, he meant it to be read as a whole. It's a sermon from beginning to end, and he meant it to end up at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So preaching any passage in John in context has got to take you there. It's got to include that. Um, but I, I, I'll, I'll pick passages where it's easier to do that than others. We're not talking here about uh, sort of allegorical teaching where people make you know stupid, uh, ridiculous applications. I, you know, I've heard heard. Uh, no, I won't say that because uh, that's not fair. But I've heard talks where uh, people have used uh, an allegorical way to get to the cross in the most incredible, ridiculous way. There is no excuse for mishandling the scriptures as an evangelist. We've got to handle them rightly as well. Yeah? Uh, so pick a passage that leads you, lead you to the cross more naturally. And John, for example, you can pick John 3. The cross is there, isn't it? Moses lifted up on the, on the pole. Um, I'm going to die so that you can live. You know, the cross is in there. Pick a passage like that. And if it's not in the passage, make sure you put it in that context. Sorry. And you, you'd rather preach from that than something like Romans 3? No, well... Um, you know, some of those little yeah. succinct um, gospel summaries that you get in the epistles? Probably. And I take, but I wouldn't be against preaching those. I've done those and do those. So, yeah, I'd roll. But one of the reasons why I am tending to use the gospels more is because of this aspect of engaging people's imagination and mind. And there is definitely is something about a story that is more accessible and more engaging sometimes than a concept. Yeah. So this business that I'm, I'm going to, again, Roger mentioned it, and I'm going to come. come to it. Shall we carry on anyway? Is that all right? Sorry. Right. Okay. So uh, here we go. That's not working. Make sure your technology works. It's always a good idea. Right. Okay. So here we are. Here's some more corny outlines, some headings. Be memorable, not just mundane. Let me ask you a question. What makes a message memorable? It's not my brain. <laughs> Thank you. 
Do you know the uh, intellectual depth of this college is to me? Yeah, I'm joking. We're going to have to alter depending on whoever's been picture Yeah. Good one. What else makes a message memorable? Vivid illustrations. Vivid illustrations definitely make it memorable. Have you noticed when you start to use illustration, all the years prick up? Now, that is not an excuse, therefore, for just telling stories all the way through, because people listen to stories. Because we, our aim is to communicate the gospel truth. But if the story helps us to, co uh, to connect with people, to grab their attention, to do that, then do it. Yeah? And you know, don't you? you you've been in sermons, haven't you? Where you've been dozing off, you know, and you've been wilting, and suddenly he says, you know, the other day I walked down to the supermarket and I met this woman and she had uh, a wooden leg and it fell off and I picked it up and handed it back to her and she screwed it back on. And that's it's a wonderful illustration of care and compassion. No, no, yeah. And immediately, oh, right, that's interesting. Yeah? So, use illustrations and, and, uh, and, and stories. Uh, and we talked about the paper. Grab the paper. Yes, yeah, sorry. Go on. It's a stage of people around the illustration, but not what it is. Yeah, there is, and that is a very true... I've got one illustration, which I think is brilliant. But the problem I've got is, whenever I use that illustration, people come to me and say afterwards, Oh, and I've got one thing I really want to ask you. What happened next? <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, they spent the entire sermon just wondering about this illustration, this story. I don't feel I can use it anymore, but it's one of my favourite ones. It's frustrating. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you're going to tell an illustration story, here's a lesson. Don't leave them on a cliffhanger, so all they're thinking about. Is that's exactly what you've just done to one of us. We're all thinking, what is yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, I'll tell you very quickly, preaching in the open air with some friends. Uh, a guy came up, really cross, was going to lay me out. A policeman came out from the crowd, stood between us. The guy hit the policeman instead of me, laid out the policeman cold on the floor. It's a true story. And I say, you know, I was very disturbed by this, but also very relieved. It's a very simple illustration. He took what was coming to me. I was very glad he did. People always ask, oh, what happened to the guy? Did they catch him? And was the policeman all right? So whenever I tell that story, I say, and yes, the policeman was fine. And the guy was arrested. And I went to see him afterwards, and he's okay now. <laughs> I do have to say that, otherwise nobody listens to the rest of our message. But anyway, there you are. There's a point you make about illustration. Yeah, Paul, just to say, I read from uh, the life of Spurgeon. Um, he said, make sure your illustrations are believable. It can be too far, you know, wow, did that really happen? Well, yeah, or, yes, and don't lie. Don't, 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 well, don't give the impression they're true if they're not true. But obviously, if you tell something and people think, oh, I like this story, everything else you say, they probably won't listen to it. On that same point, I mean, most of the evangelistic talks I've given to women and children, and uh, as I became interested in postmodernism and its effects and so on, and looking more at children and the world they live in, uh, I changed my practice. And 99% of the time, I will only use illustrations from real life. Because I want to, con I want to be congruent. I want to say to the kids, "This is truth. This is not okay. fantasy." Mm. So I separate fantasy out of mm. my illustrations. That wasn't always the case, but there was a point where I made this philosophical change. Okay. Mm. I think if you are going to use an illustration that isn't true, you make that clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, interesting. All right, Jim. Sorry. Yeah. Just sorry to extend this, but personal no. illustration, like your one then, 
it's very interesting. But if you have too many... Arresting! Very And you shoot as well. You don't read it. Very striking, isn't it? Sorry. I mean, I've heard too many preachers refer all the illustrations about their own lives, you know, and I've got my children out of bed and this other all, but you know, all in the end, George Land about them. No, it's boring. What's the point of boring illustrations? So, but they were more, the advantages that are real, like you said, but on the other hand, they do person centered, you know, so. Yeah, it's interesting in this one because Lloyd Jones says never use personal illustrations. I don't think he really believes in illustrations for a start, but he says never use personal illustrations. We should not let him talk about himself. Let him talk about Christ. I don't agree with that. Um, I think actually personal illustration is more powerful often than a book when you got out of a book. You know, there was a man in America once who was driving his car down, you know, and you think, oh, right, okay, there was a blame. You know, yeah, it's all made up, isn't it? Um, but a personal one is, is but you know, I think personal illustrations fall down either when they're boring, yeah, or when they're self-congratulatory, when they're bo- bigging you up, because people don't like that. If they make you look good, they actually like it when they make you look foolish, and you kind of win their sympathy a bit if it's like that. You know, the joke's on you. But you do hear some illustrations, don't you? you think, oh, that guy's just wants to tell us he met the Queen. And a <laughs> <laughs> knighthood or something, you know. And people are oh, yeah, he's So, yeah, good point. Be careful about how you use those illustrations. Yeah, very good point. All right, so um, where are we now? Yeah, be memorable, not just mundane. Stick to time, don't go over time. Uh, oh, you know what? I'll put this one in. Oh, I'll spend a lot of time. Here's an illustration I got from a newspaper just to illustrate. It's the Evening Standard, actually. I use this quite a bit. We were talking yesterday about, no, day before, about what is the gospel and about the importance of teaching propitiation and penal substitution. Um, but they're not easy concepts to teach, are they? This one here is the story of uh, Chris and Claire Alton and his son Tommy. They were relief workers in uh, North Africa. And they were dining in a restaurant in Khartoum when suddenly the doors burst open. In rushed five terrorists with machine guns. They sprayed the restaurant with machine gun fire and they killed 13 people, including Chris and Claire and Tommy. They caught the terrorists and they put them on trial. They found them guilty. But the judge, instead of sentencing them, wrote to the relatives of Chris and Claire off, they live in the south of England, and they said, now you've got a choice to make. And actually it was one of three things. You've got to pass sentence on the men who murdered your family. And either you can let them off, give them a pardon, you can sentence them to death, the death penalty, or you can receive, the third option for them was blood money compensation. So we'll pay you money for the lives of your relatives power of life and death. What a choice they have to make. And the family, apparently, you read the article, can't see it, they all have an argue, they had an argument. And half of the family said, yeah, but if we condemn them to death, that makes us as bad as the terrorists. It might be justice, but it's not mercy. And the other half of the family said, yeah, but if we let them off, that's not uh, justice. It might be mercy, but it's not justice. So how do you reconcile justice and mercy? What a dilemma. How can you be just and merciful at the same time. Seems impossible, doesn't it? And you know that's God's dilemma with the world. See, God is absolutely just and must punish sin. Justice demands it. He's absolutely loving and merciful and doesn't want to punish you and me, the sinner. How does God reconcile justice and mercy? Can he contradict his justice and just let us off? No. He can't. He's got to be both at the same time. And the answer... Of course, it's the cross, isn't it? It's exactly what the cross is all about. 
God demonstrates his justice by punishing wrong. He demonstrates his mercy and love by punishing someone else instead of us. God's third alternative. Not blood money compensation, but blood. Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Now I use that illustration because it, it's gripping, isn't it? You know, it's interesting. But hopefully it illustrates the point. And, and it's a difficult point to illustrate, isn't it? But hopefully get it across. Now I, that's when I picked up the evening standard. I've got, I've got a lot like that. Not all as good as that, necessarily, but I've got a lot like that. And get your scissors, cut them out, and use them. Uh, right, okay, moving on. Uh, right, we'll use the rest of the... Uh, be visual, not just verbal. Now, personally, and this is a slightly controversial one, and you may want to disagree with me on this, but you're wrong. Uh, no, I'm joking. But, but personally, I am in favour of literally using visual things. In other words, using the eye gate as well as the ear gate. And it is, a, I think, a demonstrable point, a provable point scientifically, that people do remember things that they see as well as hear better than things they only hear. All right? I think that has been demonstrated scientifically. Uh, however, uh, you, 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 you may want to disagree with that and say, no, it's just got to be the preached word, etc., etc. I'm not going to fall out over it. Um, but if you agree with me on this one, um, then I would certainly recommend the use of PowerPoint. Uh, not because it's, oh, it's novel and I can do clever things with it and the words flip round. Uh, if I don't do any of that any, 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 anymore, don't do any of that. I just put it simple. I don't crowd the, the screen with lots of information. Bullet points up there. But they, they know where you've gone then. They can look back and it sort of gives them the, the, the logic of the term. Yeah, sure. The University of Harvard done a study on the use of PowerPoint by um, people selling products and so right. And uh, they've come to the conclusion that salespeople have over relied on PowerPoint yeah. Yeah. and not used their persuasive yeah. methods. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. I was going to come on and say that. There are dangers in this. But you're right, sure, yeah. Um, but just going back to what I was saying. Uh, and ignoring no, no, not ignoring that point. Coming back to that point in a sec. Uh, Achieve a couple of, I think, the really, where, where PowerPoint really scores highly. And one of the biggest things, without a doubt, the biggest reason I use PowerPoint is because I can get people to look at the scriptures with me. And the only other way I can do that is to stick a Bible in their hands or print out on a bit of paper and give it to them. Which takes preparation, because I believe in preparation. I don't do that. But uh, it's, it's easier for me just to whack it up there on the screen. And to me, that is the single most useful thing that PowerPoint can do. <coughs> to be honest, you could, just stick the, you could just have it up to that and then switch it off. But I think there are values in it. However, I do also think sometimes, if you've got a quote, and it's a longer quote, it really helps to have it up on the screen. People read the quote with you, and they, re- they hear it or remember it or understand it better. The quote on the screen sometimes. And quotes can be good, can't they? Can be really useful. Incidentally, if you're going to quote someone, don't just put their words up there. Put a picture up there. That's quite a good idea. Just you know, there's the person. You can see the person that said these words. Or want to hold you back? May yeah. I have one quick. You can. The idea that I got on the course for a gentleman uh, had a little foot uh, button, and when he wanted to look at the screen, he, you didn't see him do anything. He was part of a presenter. He touched the foot button, and up it came on the screen, and you saw it. You watched. But he wanted your attention, he pressed the foot button, and, and you could just see the power of this. Yeah. And that's an ideal. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And actually, this isn't working today. I've got that on here. 
press that button, it blanks the screen. Press it again, the screen comes back. Um, I, 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 I don't find it a distraction, personally. I find people say, oh, that's really interesting. Actually, it helped me to see it as well. Um, that's my, but I don't dispute the, the study. And it's certainly true to say that if you are fiddling around with your PowerPoint and, oh, it's not come on and, oh, it's not working and it's distracted you, it's distracted them. Yeah? So it's got to be smooth, seamless. It's in the background. It's not distracting you. It's not distracting them. And it's never, ever, as Sheila pointed out there from that study, it's never a substitute for good verbal proclamation. Second thing I want to say on this be visual, not verbal, however, is coming to what Roger said a little bit, and that is, oh no, before I do that, sorry, before I do that, uh, another use, I think, of the screen now is to use video clips. And I do that a lot in evangelistic preaching. They're really good ways of starting talk. Short clip from film that leads you into the theme or illustrates the point you want to make uh, can be very powerful um, and uh, very effective. And so I do that quite a bit. Um, there's a brilliant website called wingclips.com. It's an American website. They've got thousands of legally downloadable clips from films on hundreds of themes. And uh, from A to Z, there are literally hundreds of themes, every anger, you know, uh, faith, death. And for each one of those topics, there's probably five or six short, uh, downloadable, and it's all perfectly legal, absolutely legal. You can do that, and it's free. You don't have to become a member or subscribe. You can just download it. What's and I use that, winklets.com. Uh, and it's useful. Yeah. Any of your talks that you use PowerPoint evangelistically, yeah. if, if it didn't work, would your talk have fallen apart? What, the PowerPoint? No, it mustn't. You've got yeah, to. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it mustn't. So you could do your talk independently. You've got to be able to, yeah. yeah. In fact, what they say, technically, you should have a hard copy of everything that you put up on the that screen. Right. Well, I, I'm not that committed. But that's your one principle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Really helpful. Yeah, I'm not that committed to PowerPoint to actually bring a hard copy mm. of everything. So if it fails, I just forget it mm. and just go on. Because it's not the main thing. The main thing is what I've got here and what I've got here. Mm. You know, that's the main thing. Good point. Right, okay. Um, but on this visual, not verbal business, can I say that we can be visual verbally? And I think that's even more of an important point. And if you look at the way that Jesus preaches, he's very visual verbally, isn't he? He's constantly painting pictures. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that quote of Roger, which I've heard before. The mind is not a debating chamber. It is only a picture gallery. I think that's an overstatement because I think the mind is a debating chamber as well as the picture gallery. Uh, but the point is well made uh, that it is a picture gallery as well as. And some of our talks are so conceptual, it's like sitting in a courtroom listening to a lawyer. Subclause one, I refer my lords back to my previous <laughs> statement. You know, and it's. You know, well, that's like that's you know what goes on in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, but don't have your water over either when you're preaching, that's a good point. Um, but no, and it's boring, it's boring, it's lifeless. Um, so be, be, uh, be visual, not just verbal, I missed out a point. Be visual, not just verbal. Um, and that's really important. And, and so Jesus does it with his parables, they grip your attention. You're in there, you're there at the roadside with a guy that's been beaten up on his way to Jericho. And you watch this priest walk by and you hear him 
stick his nose in the air. And you hear this guy groaning all the way out. Hell. You're there, aren't you? And then the punch. I've got my Samaritan. Of all people. There he stops. And it's got your emotions, doesn't it? We've got you. You know, a Samaritan. You know, that's like saying, um, I don't know, the paedophile stops and picks him up. Or, and it's, it's the punch. But it's, you, you're there. I think we need to learn to do that. And it's very interesting, as Roger pointed out, that, that there's, there is quite a difference between the teaching of Jesus. It's not all uh, uh, concrete. Some of it is conceptual. Okay? So there are, you know, there, there are parts where he's just teaching concepts. However, a lot of it is concrete rather than conceptual. So he's teaching truths through concrete stories that you can latch onto. And, and uh, I think that's important. Uh, r- rushing on right through my notes here, very, very quickly then. Um, what do I want to cut out? What do I want to say? Um, a few other practical points. Under this heading, be listenable, not lifeless, which we kind of missed out. I think this is really key, actually. You've really mentioned passion. You know, do not be passionless. Passion is evidenced in different people in different ways. For some people... Passion will mean that they'll move around. For me, I'm a bit like that. Time my hands behind the back, I can't speak. You know, be careful that you don't over-gesticulate and become odd and weird. You know, and and just dramatic um, for the sake of it. You know, and it becomes a bit of a, a distraction. But I'm like that. That's that's the way. And I I tend to alter the pitch of my voice quite a lot. And I will get louder and softer. And that's the way I am. That's just my personality. I'm a bit like that when we we're talking about football. You know. uh, so you've got to be true to your own personality but whatever your personality is and however you demonstrate passion be passionate and for some people it's just like oh, yeah. passion isn't it it comes through and their, their tone really subtly but you, you look at their the look, the look in their eye the tone of their voice and you say this guy believes what he's saying I may not agree with him I may think it's nonsense but I'm Absolutely sure that he thinks it's the most important message in all of the world. People have got to see that in haven't they? You know? That passion is powerful. And we need to be passionate. And there's too much passion as preaching. It's a lecture. And I meant what I said earlier on. I think a lot of people have gone to preaching courses and have heard lectures about preaching. And they think that's how you preach. And that is not how you preach. That's how you lecture. And we've got to distinguish between the two. We've got, to be, we've got to learn to be passionate. We've got to grab people's attention from the off. I don't think any evangelistic message should start like this. Now I'd like you to pick up your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to look this morning at the story of the parable of Adam. I don't think any... I think you can start teaching sermons like that, although even that, even that I'm not convinced. And the reason is this, that most non-Christians, in my experience, will make up, when make up in their minds, decide in their minds whether they're going to listen to you in the first couple of minutes. And if you haven't grabbed them within a minute or two, they've switched off. And they've decided they're not going to bother to listen to you. And you've got to look really hard to get them back. So, begin like this. He was born in the state of Washington in 1986. At the age of seven... His parents got divorced and grew up with his relatives. 
So he discovered he got an ability to, to write music and he formed a group with some of his mates in 1986. I don't know if I've said that already. <laughs> 1986. And they call themselves, ironically now, Nirvana. Um, you may have heard of them. And they achieved worldwide success, played to massive stadiums, became multi millionaires. And uh, eventually, this guy at the age of uh, whatever it was, I can't remember now, family, he got married to a girl called uh, Courtney Love. They had a beautiful daughter called Frances. At the age of 27, he took a shotgun, put it to his head, and killed himself. He left a suicide note. And he said in his suit. Now, has that got your attention? So I'm straight into a talk there on the purpose and meaning of life. That is the way I might introduce a talk on John Paul, the woman of the lamb. What is life all about, you know? It just seems so pointless at times. You can have everything, can't you? The money, the fame, and yet what's it mean? You've got to grab people by the throat, as it were, right from the start, right from the word go. And that means you've got to prepare your takeoff, and I would argue as well your landing, very carefully in gospel preaching. The, the most crucial part of a oh, the most crucial part of a, of a flight, and the thing that pilots have to work most hard at and train most at, is takeoff and landing. And I would say the most crucial parts, every part's crucial, but the most important parts, in a sense, are the takeoff and landing. Get your introduction and your conclusion right. Your introduction grabs them. You've got their attention. Your conclusion applies and drives home the message and asks for a response. Get those two things right. They're really important preaching. So often, they're the things we think least about. Our introduction is just, yes, yeah, turn to your Bible, and our conclusion is, well, thank you for listening to me. It's, um, I've run out of time now, so. I think we'll just close with a prayer. You know, so I've heard, have you heard sermons like that? I have. Time and time again, we think, oh, mate, you've missed it. God has spent a lot of time. Mm. And the, the problem is, obviously, the content, the body of our sermon, <coughs> takes up an awful lot of our time and work, and we need to be careful that we give time in our preparation to introductions and conclusions. Eye contact, really important. Don't be a preacher. Like, how many preachers have I seen do this? Uh. And, um... Well, you know, or they do this. Uh, well, it's great to be with you today. And uh, where are you? I'm looking at the ceiling. Where are you? Oh, you're down there. Right, okay. Uh, or this. Well, it's great to be with you today. And uh, I'd just like to... I've, I remember one sermon, I timed it. And for 15 minutes, it was 15 minutes before I saw anything of this guy other than the top of his bald head. <laughs> Honestly, if I was there, I could think... Quite a long time speaker, actually, so I don't really get what I say. We timed him 15 minutes before he looked up. We could all have left, gone out of the corner, come back 15 minutes. He wouldn't even know he had left the building. And don't do that. Eye contact is massively important in communication. Hugely. And if you've got, and I've seen it in a number of people, and you know, I'm guilty of it as well, if you've got a habit of doing this one, looking off into distant space or closing your eyes when you preach like that then get out of that habit as quickly as you can learn to look at people it's really important to communicate so much through your eyes massively important um, very simple area to get into we talk about the use of humour we haven't got time but um, do use humour do use humour how do you get a camel through the eye of a needle isn't that ludicrous? 
Can you imagine trying to push a camel through the eye of a needle? What a joke! See, Jesus used it, didn't he? Jesus used humour and uh, sarcasm, which is kind of form of humour, isn't it? Yes, use it, because it, it grabs people's attention, it communicates. Um, tension and release, oh, we've time to talk about this, but tension and release is really important in any message. People cannot concentrate at the same level all the way through your sermon. And in any sermon, there will be an arc, a wave of concentration. It will begin high, probably, and then it will begin to dip, and then it will probably come up again towards the end. So you've got to work at that dip in the middle, and you've got to say, right, in the middle I'm going to stick in an illustration, because then I'm going to get them back. I am aware that people cannot concentrate at one level. It's unreasonable for me to expect them to do that for half an hour. So I'm going to be kind to them, and I'm going to give their brain a moment to relax. Yeah? And just, oh, I can just listen to this bit without having to concentrate too hard. Do that. It's a tension release in every message. Be persuasive, not just informative, uh, really important. Preach for a verdict. People need to know what you're asking them to do. Spell it out. Spell it out. Write out your, your, your conclusion. Prepare it carefully. Write it out. Work it out in your head. Uh, John Chapman, learn from him on this one. He'll invariably finish any evangelistic message this way. You know, there are probably three types of people here in this room. Some of you are Christians. You've already committed your life to God. And uh, that's tremendous. Keep going. But the people in this room, and you're really not even convinced there is a God. Even after all I've said. You know, you're really not convinced God even exists. So you've got loads of questions. Can I encourage you to keep looking into it? And here's a gospel you could take away and read. You know? Why not look into it? But there may be a third type of person here, and that person is you, and you know that what I've been saying is true. It makes sense. And you know you need to do something about it, and you do. And right now I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something about it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn from the sin and to put your trust in Jesus. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. This is my dad, I've added this bit in. It's probably not as good as John Chapman's, but I say that I'm going to pray three things, very simple things. I'm going to pray, God, I am sorry. Sorry for the way I rebelled against you. God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. God, please, because of Jesus, forgive me and take control of my life. Something like that. I'm going to say, now I'm telling you those things now, because I want you to be absolutely clear about this. It's not some sort of magic formula. This isn't mystical. It, it's, it's you making a, a deliberate, informed decision and choice. But I encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray this prayer now. I'm going to ask that uh, we just bow our heads. If you don't want to pray, that's fine. But maybe tonight, you know that God's speaking to you. I encourage you to share this prayer with me. And I pray slowly, sentence by sentence. Just echo it in your heart. Don't say the words out loud. God hears your heart. And if you pray this prayer with all of your heart, God's promises, he will hear and answer. I'll then pray the prayer. I'll then say, afterwards, now look, um, this isn't a catch. You don't have to do this. But I recommend it to you. Uh, why not go and tell someone? Maybe a Christian who's brought you, or me, if you like, or somebody who's organised this event. Just go and say, look, I prayed that prayer. It'll help to see it in your own heart. We'd love to give you some literature that will help you to begin the Christian life. And if you didn't pray that prayer, 
I've got these Gospels for you. And I'd encourage you to take them I've got this book looking. They know exactly what you're asking them to do, don't they? Yeah? Be clear. Plan that out. Work that out. And I've, I've worked that out in my own head. Roger had a brilliant, brilliant way of finishing his sermons. And, uh, and let me try and get it right now. I just said that. I can't remember it. It's something like, um, if not, yeah, that's right. Are you a Christian tonight? If not, or have you trusted Christ? He'd say, if not, why not? And if not, why not tonight? And that was his little line. And uh, it's a great little line. If not, why not? And if not, why not tonight? And he'd use that. But, but think it through, the words that you use. Prepare it carefully. Oh, sorry, we've gone out of time. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we want to thank you for the way that we can encourage and help one another. And uh, Lord, we pray that something that's been said by, by us this morning would really help us to be better preachers of your gospel. Lord, it is an immense privilege and we say thank you, Father, for giving us this task, making us your ambassadors. It's an immense privilege to be entrusted with your gospel. Lord, help us to, to do it well. Help us to preach well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.